most of us have almost no knowledge of what actually happens in heaven. So if we really did believe in it, it's surprising that most of us have very little understanding of it. And not only that, but probably most of us never even talk about it. We've probably had only a handful of conversations, maybe at specific points in our life, but it's not something we commonly discuss is what's going to happen in heaven. What's the afterlife like? It probably hasn't been on your mind that much. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that the church, not just our church, but I mean the church in general in the United States, we've done actually a pretty bad job handling heaven. I really do think that. I don't think we've talked about it very much. There's very few. I mean, if I count back years and years of me going to uh, other churches before we planted Acts, I can maybe remember one or two times in which the pastor actually stopped and focused in on talking about heaven. Very often, we spend the majority of our life, even if we are somebody who says we, we believe, talking about what we're going to do with this life. Not about what happens after this life. It's all about figuring out how we're going to live this life, how we're going to make the most of it, do the best we can with it. But we very rarely talk about what's going to happen after this life. Now, that being said, to take a step back and not throw too many stones at the church, I think part of this is the product of our American culture. Um, you hear a lot more said about heaven in cultures where the situation is pretty bleak, right? Areas where there's famine and there's, you know, war and all these different other things, genocide, where you hear them talking about heaven because it's kind of like, is there something great that comes after this? But in the United States, I think that our lives here can be so good that we're not really worried about what comes after it. We're worried about enjoying what we have here. I mean, the world is pretty great. A lot of us have a pretty fun time. There's, there's high highs. And we think this is what I'm really worried about. I'm not really concerned about heaven. But I think it's really important that we discuss this subject. I mean, really, no matter who we are. If you're the person who you are a believer and you say, no, no, I do believe uh, in the idea that there's, that there's a heaven and that, that God's going to send us there after we die. Um, if you have that belief, you likely spend, you're going to spend the, the broad majority of your existence in this afterlife. Right? Way, way, way more than you're going to spend here. So it would be important to understand what's going to happen in that afterlife. And if you're exploring your faith in some sense or another, where you're like trying to figure out like what's all this faith all about, you know, any religious system you really go into, one of the first conversations is, what do you believe happens in the afterlife? That's a standard question that would be asked of all religions, right? And you would think, well, if I'm exploring Christianity, of course, I would wonder, what's your take on the afterlife? Aside from that, no matter who you are, I think all of us have likely lost somebody, and we wonder, where are they? We've lost a family member, or a close friend, mom or dad, and we think, where are they? Do they just cease to exist, or are they somewhere that I could picture them and understand that they still exist? Is there something after this life that continues on? Well, I got even more interested in this subject a few years back because I read a really, really fascinating book by a pastor named John Burke. The book is actually called Imagine Heaven, and John is a pastor of a church out in Texas, and he ended up getting fascinated by the same subject, talking to thousands of people who had had near-death experiences, or NDEs, because people started noting that people who had these near-death experiences and all of a sudden felt as though they left their bodies, they started seeing similar things. Over and over and over again, they would see a similar place. They would have similar experiences. And John wrote this book to kind of reconcile the conversation of these people's near-death experiences with perhaps what actually is, is talked about in the Bible, in these writings, these ancient writings that, that 
were supposedly sent from God in regards to what we postulate about heaven, and do they line up? This book is fascinating. If, if this subject um, interests you in any way where you think, I really am interested in the idea of heaven, maybe you lost somebody and it really makes, uh, you know, this is like something you want to get figured out, I would highly recommend just picking up and reading this book. I'm going to read you a few little quotes from it uh, today and next week, but if this interests you, go ahead and grab it. It's back at our resource center, so if you literally wanted to grab it today, it's there for sale at our resource center. You can also find it on Amazon, anywhere else. We basically sell our books for the same price as Amazon or close to it, because uh, we just want to get good books into your hands. So if you're interested in that, by all means, read this book. Um, it definitely changed my view, for sure. But the reason John uh, read, I mean, wrote this book, and, and why I think it strikes us so interestingly, is because these near-death experiences are starting to gain the attention of not just religious people, um, but scientists, medical staff, in fact. Believe it or not, Articles have been written about these experiences in medical journals such as uh, Psychiatry, The Lancet, Critical Care Quarterly, The American Journal of, of Psychiatry, and The Journal of the American Medical Association. These are medical journals, not religious journals. And they're writing about these near-death experiences because they're becoming so much more common. Our technology is getting good enough that we're kind of rescuing people back from that edge of death. And their experiences are kind of being compiled and the reason why, more than anything, they're really standing out is because regardless of sex or regardless of where they were born in the world or regardless of age or regardless of religious background, they're seeing the same place. They're talking about the same locations. They're, they're experiencing the same things. And that's kind of what caught their attention because it wasn't as though it's one religion is seeing one thing and another religion is seeing another. One area is seeing this and another is seeing this. It's that they're all kind of seeing this picture of the same environment. This so much uh, caught the attention of a doctor named Jeffrey Long. He's a radiation oncologist that he decided to research compiling thousands of these, these near-death experiences. And listen what he says just as a doctor talking about this subject. By studying thousands of detailed accounts of NDEers, I found the evidence that led to this astounding conclusion. NDEs provide such powerful scientific evidence that it is reasonable to accept the existence of an afterlife. This is just a doctor, not a pastor, not somebody who's talking from a spiritual nature. He said that after going through all this and hearing all these stories and putting them all together, there's enough scientific evidence to say it would be reasonable to just assume maybe there really is an afterlife because of how consistent these stories are. People tell these stories of this beautiful place that they wake up into and traveling to this location and it kind of being like earth but not in this beautiful lush fields and, and expansive forests and people and, and, and the same kind of experience over and over and over again. I want to actually read one of them by a Harvard neurosurgeon named Eben Alexander. And Eben had a really interesting situation in which his neocortex crashed. Basically what that is, is that's the part of your brain that kind of makes you human. And this guy's, I mean, a Harvard neurosurgeon, so he knows a lot about the brain, right? And he had this experience where his neocortex crashed after being sick, and he wrote about it in a book. And listen to what it says. He says, As a neurosurgeon, I'd heard many stories over the years of people who had strange experiences, usually after suffering cardiac arrest. Stories of traveling to mysterious, wonderful landscapes, of talking to dead relatives, even of meeting God himself. Wonderful stuff, no question. But all of it, in my opinion, was pure fantasy. 
If you don't have a working brain, you can't be conscious. This is because the brain is the machine that produces consciousness in the first place. When the machine breaks down, consciousness stops. Pull the plug and the TV goes dead. The show is over no matter how much you might have been enjoying it. Or so I would have told you before my own brain crashed. My experience showed me that death of the body and the brain are not the end of consciousness. That human experience continues beyond the grave. More important, it continues under the gaze of a God who loves and cares about each one of us and about where the universe itself and all the beings within it are ultimately going. The place I went was real. Real in a way that makes the life we're living here and now completely dreamlike by comparison. I went through the opening and found myself in a completely new world. The strangest, most beautiful world I'd ever seen. Brilliant, vibrant, ecstatic, stunning. I could heap on one adjective after another to describe what this world looked and felt like. But they'd all fall short. I felt like I was being born. Below me there was a countryside. It was green, it was lush, and earth-like. It was earth, but at the same time it wasn't. I was flying, passing over trees and fields, streams and waterfalls, and here and there people. There were children, too, laughing and playing. The people sang and danced around in circles, and sometimes I'd see a dog running and jumping among them. This Dr. Eben Alexander writes about his crashed brain, and it's so fascinating because he said, I would naturally assume that our consciousness, what we think of as kind of the person inside of the body, that's our consciousness, which is in our brain. So as soon as our brain turned off, there'd be no more. But he said, that's actually what happened. My brain shut down, and I was still fully conscious, that I went to this place, and I was still alive and present. And this doctor, he sees the same thing that multiple other people see. They see this place that's like earth, but it's different. They talk about the, the amazing beauty, about the idea like almost every blade of grass was perfectly placed. That it seems as though like the, the, the colors weren't just colors, but like light was coming through the colors into their eyes. And, and to be honest with you, when you hear their stories, you can tell every time they're kind of searching for words because they can't put human words to describe what they had experienced. It's too grand of an experience that they can barely describe it, right? But what's so fascinating is, is that idea that he says what he saw. And for me, I put it up next to what I have heard and read about in, in stories that are inside the Bible. There's this guy named John, and John was one of Jesus' closest friends. He ended up traveling with him, living with him, and then after Jesus had died, come back from the dead, disappeared, basically, he ended up being exiled to this island called Patmos to starve to death. And while he was there, John ended up writing this book called Revelation. He said that God's spirit came to him, that he took him basically into the, the heavens, and he showed, them, showed him what the afterlife would be like and asked him, would you write this down, John, so people could get a glimpse of what the afterlife is like. And what's cool about this is when I read this story, it lines up perfectly with what this Dr. Eben and so many other people talk about. Amazing. He actually says this in Revelation 21, 10 through 13. This is kind of the moment in which the, the Spirit of God takes him to the afterlife, takes him to heaven. And listen what he says. So he took me in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels. And the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. Now, 
And you'd say, wait, wait a second, how does that line up with what they're saying? And this is, this is what I'm getting to. Very commonly, in so many different faiths, we would expect that when somebody would get taken to the afterlife to show them, we would assume that maybe John was going to get taken up to the clouds, right? That's the picture we always get of heaven, is somewhere up in the clouds, in the, in the ether, floating there on clouds, playing harps, right, with little babies in diapers with wings floating around. But he says, that's not what happened. The Spirit came, and instead of me going up into the clouds, oh, I stayed right here on earth. He took me to a high mountain, and he showed me that heaven actually was coming out of the sky and landing here on earth. So many of these people who have near-death experiences, they don't describe a place that's, that's clouds and light. They describe a place that kind of looks like earth, but more beautiful. And friends, that's what John is giving us this picture that the heaven that we so often talk about, the idea of past the clouds somewhere where God is, kind of in this ether out there, that heaven that we kind of always discuss, that is simply a waiting place until God remakes the eternal earth where we spend eternity. The afterlife that the Bible talks about isn't somewhere up in clouds floating playing harps. God actually says in the book of Isaiah that he's going to come and he's going to rebuild the earth, recreate it, and then heaven will come down basically onto this earth and we will spend eternity living on this earth remade. This is actually where we spend eternity. When we think about heaven and we think about the afterlife, it's actually going to be a very earth-like environment. I would liken it far more back to like the idea of the Garden of Eden and the idea of what the kind of the beginning of the story says of this lush garden that's created and there's no sin and where the man and God are kind of together in this garden. That's what God says we're actually going to spend eternity in. Right now, the heaven we kind of think about there, it's kind of this waiting place until we come back to this at the end of the age. And that's what he says. Just like all these people see, they just say, oh, I'm not up hovering in the clouds. I see grass and fields and streams. And he says, that's what God is showing me. Heaven actually comes down here to earth. Very organic, very earthy. And what he sees is also this this giant city. And and this is really interesting because so many people who have these near-death experiences talk about experiencing this one central place, this one beautiful city where it seems as though the presence of God exists. One of the stories, which is so fascinating, is, is, is a guy named Dale Black. He was a commercial pilot. And on a takeoff one day, he ended up clipping his wing, crashing, and he died in this crash only to be revived minutes later. And after he died, he talked about this this travel that he took in these minutes in between, basically flying in, as it almost seems, to this location. Listen how he describes it. I was fast approaching a magnificent city, golden and gleaming among a myriad of resplendent colors. The light I saw was the purest I had ever seen, and the music was the most majestic, enchanting, and glorious I had ever heard. I was still approaching the city, but now I was slowing down like a plane making its final approach for landing. I knew instantly this place was entirely and utterly holy. Don't ask me how I knew. I just knew. I was overwhelmed by its beauty. It was breathtaking, and a strong sense of belonging filled my heart. I never wanted to leave. Somehow I knew it was, I was made for this place, and this place was made for me. The entire city was bathed in light, an opaque whiteness in which the light was intensified but was diffused. In that dazzling light, every color imaginable seemed to exist. And I don't know what's the right word, played. The colors seemed to be alive, dancing in the air. I had never seen so many different colors. It was breathtaking to watch. And I could have spent forever doing just that. 
He says that he starts kind of hovering in to this giant city. This beautiful city that's radiating light. And it seems as though the, the light comes out through it. But it's this opaque whiteness. But it reflects every color. And when I look at that, John goes on to describe this exact same city in the book of Revelation. He talks about this exact same thing. And the way they line up is just amazing. Listen what John says about this same city that I believe Dale got a glimpse of. In Revelation 21, 15 through 18, and then 21 through 23. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass, which I think that's a mixed metaphor between the two of those. Verse 21, it says, The twelve gates were made of pearls. Each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminated the city, and the Lamb is its light. I love, he describes this city, and it's so similar to what Dale says, where he says, it seemed as though it was translucent white but reflective colors and and he talks about how these gates were made of pearl right very similar description he talks about the idea that it was this this shining radiance and he says there was no sun out in the sky it seemed as though the light came from the city and it radiated out and he talks about the idea the walls were made of pure gold but they were clear as glass and sometimes there's been kind of some bad teaching on that where they go actually the purest form of gold is clear that's not really true I think that's actually a mixed metaphor where he's trying to describe the value and the worth of it while also still describing kind of the look of it at the same time and he says it's just beautiful gold but it's like clear where you can see through it and the light radiates through this beautiful city so many people see pictures of this city and their near-death experiences and when I saw the first glimpse of this city as far as like reading about it in John and then hearing these these people have near-death experiences it blew my mind because I don't know if you caught it but he says this, this city that John says comes out of heaven and descends to earth where we're going to spend our afterlife. He says it's 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles deep. Now that is far wider than you can see. I mean, that would be as far as the eyes can see either direction and beyond. In fact, basically 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles would equal up to basically having 2 million square miles inside of it. Just for reference... The entire lower 48, right, all of our contiguous United States, 3 million square, square miles. So when you do the comparison, this city that he's talking about is literally around the same size as the entire United States to the west of the Mississippi River. That that's how big this city is described as. We're not talking about a little city where everyone's packed together. We're talking about a city that would be big enough to house rushing rivers, a city that would have giant lakes, a city that would have entire mountain ranges inside of it, a city that would have grand canyons and in massive amounts of space, entirely different climates perhaps and ecosystems. We're talking about a vast array of areas. But, but, I don't know if you caught what John said, which is what's so amazing. He doesn't just say that it's 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles deep. He says the city is also 1,400 miles tall. 
He says the city looks like a perfect cube that's sitting here. And I thought, why would God need a a roof that's 1,400 miles tall? Doesn't it just seem like a little bit of overkill, right? That's really, really tall. And I thought, well, what if it's not because God just wanted a really tall ceiling? What if there are levels in this city? What if the reason why it's so grand as far as its height is because God, in his miraculous engineering that we could never understand, created levels inside of this city that would, would you know, take up multiple areas. And I thought, well, I mean, how big could they be? Well, just for reference, I mean, even if every level housed the largest mountain on planet Earth, Mount Everest, Mount Everest is only six miles tall. That's it. I know. Aren't you some a little, like, a little bit disappointed where you're like, that's it, right? Only six miles tall. That means that if every level could house a Mount Everest, it still means that there could be 233 floors inside of this city. But obviously, not every level would need to be that big. I mean, if God's creating this this city to be able to house us, a place for us to spend our afterlife, of course, some of them could be much shorter. I mean, areas that would just be for communities where we would have, you know, houses that we might live in. Um, Those wouldn't have to be more than maybe a few thousand feet. I mean, when you go outside and you look at the sky, you're only seeing a few thousand feet. You're not seeing miles into the sky. Cloud cover is right in that area. It could could be a, a much shorter distance. And I thought, well, what if we average those out? What if there were some that were very, very tall with grand mountains? And what if there were some that were shorter where it was just for houses? And, and what if we averaged those all out so that on about average, about every mile, there would be a level? Some taller, some shorter, but about every mile, there would be a level. That would mean there would be 1,400 levels inside of the city. Listen, 2 million square miles, 1,400 levels. That means that the land area just inside of the city would be the size of the entire landmass of the entire earth 48 times. Just inside the city would be 48 earths of landmass, 48 earths of of ecosystems. You think about how vast our planet Earth is and think about I mean, most of us barely get to explore a tiny little dent of it. All of the land on Earth, 48 Earths worth, worth of land just in this one city. And as I started to step back from that, I realized, man, heaven isn't some place where we're going to be bored sitting on a cloud. God has created an expanse far greater than we could imagine to be able to explore, to be able to enjoy. The idea we wouldn't be packed together in little apartments. I mean, each of us might have these these vast stretches of land in which we we explore on our own and we have to be able to do whatever our desires might be, to, to roam, to hike, to hunt, whatever the situation might be. Who knows? I mean, the vastness of it is just amazing. Now, What I think is really great about that, not just the idea that it's very earthy and it makes sense to me in regards to that, but all these people who had these near-death experiences, almost all of them talk about another similar experience they had. Not just that they saw this beautiful place or that they got a glimpse of it, but that they were actually present in it. Not like they just saw like a video roll of this location, but that they were actually embodied and present inside of this eternity. One story was from this guy named Dr. Ebby. And he's actually, um, 
Another doctor, which is kind of funny, I wonder if God does this to doctors because they're so smart that they'll actually write down their findings. But Dr. Ebby was moving boxes at a Chicago apartment. He leaned on a railing on the outside of the apartment and the railing broke and he actually fell multiple stories directly onto his head. They said he was killed instantly, he was taken to the hospital, and as he was being taken to the morgue, because they figured he was dead, he miraculously revived. And in this time, he had this experience, and, and being this doctor, as soon as he kind of comes to, on the other side of this life, he immediately assesses what he is, and he does such a great job of it. Listen to what he says. He says, basically, as he looks down at himself, he says, I was the same size, the same shape, as the person I had seen in the mirror for years. I was clothed in a translucent flowing gown, pure white, but transparent to my gaze. In amazement, I could see through my body and note the gorgeous white flowers behind and beneath me. This seemed perfectly normal, yet thrillingly novel. My feet were easy to see, no bifocals necessary. Obviously, I had bad eyes in, in this life. He says, I had instantly noted that my eyes were unlimited in range of vision. Ten inches or ten miles, the focus was sharp and clear. There were no bones or vessels or organs. The abdomen and chest were organless and transparent to my gaze, though translucent to my peripheral vision. Again, my mind, which worked here in heaven with electric-like speed, answered my unspoken query. They are not needed. Jesus is the life here. He is the needed energy. Dr. Ebby comes to, in this afterlife, and as assessing himself, he says, I look down and I immediately realize I, I have my body. Although it's kind of different, he says, I can kind of see through it. And the two words he uses, transparent yet translucent. I don't know if you guys go back to like high school where they teach you that stuff in like physics class or transparent, see-through, translucent, kind of see-through, right? He says, it was though I could see through it, but kind of in my peripheral, I still had a real form. I wasn't just like hollow. I still was translucent when I kind of looked at myself where I had a real form that I could exist in. Now listen, this makes no sense with a multitude of faiths around the globe. A multitude of faiths, when they talk about the idea of exiting this world and entering into the afterlife, many of them talk about the idea of dissolution of spirit. It's a very common theme in religious ideas. The idea that basically we will depart from our body and our energies will disappear into the universe. We'll become one with the universe. Or there'll be some sort of materialistic change. Or we'll be spirits that are finally freed from these bodies that are weighing us down. Christianity really kind of stands alone in regards to saying, no, we are going to be completely embodied. In fact, Paul wrote about this same subject to the Corinthian church. Paul, believe it or not, also got a glimpse of heaven. He wrote about it that he actually saw God took him to what he called the third heaven. So basically, first heaven, sky, second heaven, planets. He called it the third heaven, the idea of like where God must be, and gave him a glimpse of what the afterlife would be like in it. I wonder, for real, if this wasn't actually Paul having a near-death experience, we have credible evidence in the book of Acts that Paul was taken to the point of death multiple times in beatings and stonings. I wonder if he didn't see a near-death experience because he does not give reference to when he experiences this. I wonder if he didn't see it then. But he writes to the Corinthian church to explain this because they're wondering, what happens to our family members? What happens when we go on to eternity? And listen how he describes this. So close to what these people are saying, that we have a real body that we're in. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4, through 4, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body for us by God himself. Excuse me, created by God himself. Let me not lose my place here. 
and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and we sigh. But it's not that we want to die to get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. I love Paul says, Some people have been wondering and asking, but it's not like when we die, we disappear from this body and we just become a floating orb of light somewhere, right? Or a spirit that dissolves. He says, no, we're going to have a body. He says, specifically, God had already designed a better body for you. And and that's so good too, right? It's not just the idea we step into eternity with what you have, right? Because some of you are like, this thing is wearing out, right? Some of you are, I mean, I'm 30, and sometimes I'm like, that didn't used to ache, right? Some of you are like 40, 50, 60, and you're like, just wait, brother, right? There are days you wake up, and you're like, oh, man, this thing is tearing down, right? We don't just take this body into eternity, right? It says we're given this new body. I like what he says. It's not that we want to die, like we hate this body. That's not the case. A lot of religions, that's the case. It's kind of like just to be freed from this terrible earthly tent. He says it's that we're going to be swallowed up by life, and rejuvenated to a new body. And I think that's so fascinating because he's talking about something that I believe we get a picture of in Jesus when we talked about it just last week. That Jesus died, was buried, and three days later he came back from the dead. And Jesus is fully embodied. He, he shows up to the disciples. They can recognize him, although he can kind of change his appearance enough that maybe sometimes people don't recognize him. Maybe there's something kind of interesting and spiritual with that. But also, I mean, he comes up and he, he eats dinner. He eats breakfast with them. But also at another time, they're, they're in a locked room and all of a sudden Jesus just like, poof, appears in the room and freaks them out, right? All of a sudden they're in lockdown and they're like, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden Jesus just like, smoke. And he's like, peace. And they're like, I'll jump back, right? Ghost, everybody running. He's like, it's, it's me, it's all good, right? So we know there must be something in regards to the idea that his body has new capabilities. But Jesus was very much so in a body. I actually think this this... It makes so much sense, and also, to be honest with you, it brings so much comfort to me. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just too practical of a person. I don't like the idea of being a floating orb of light. I don't like it. I don't like that idea at all. I understand the idea of living in a place that's similar to earth and having a body that's similar to mine. And can anybody else just agree with me? Jesus ate when he was here on earth, which is good evidence to prove there is food in heaven. Amen, right? No floating orb of light. Exact Floating orb of light, you're like, where does the bacon go, right? <laughs> I need a mouth because, man, I want to celebrate and eat. There's going to be food in heaven. And it makes sense that we're embodied and that we're present in that. I actually think, here's, here's what I think, because a lot of times I like to kind of think outside of the box with this. I don't think it's just the idea that we get a new body and it's like engaged in spiritual things. I actually wonder if we're not giving a fully physical body. But removing the sin in which it doesn't tear down, then we exist on these levels. Because listen, this is pretty cool. There's a guy named Brian Greene, and he wrote this book called The Elegant Universe, okay? And he was talking about a thing called string theory, which is like, if you want to explode your brain, go and read this stuff, because it'll, it'll blow your mind, right? But this man won awards because of his understandings of the universe, and this idea of string theory is to kind of rationalize and understand the universe. And listen what he says. He says that he postulates that quantum mechanics and general relativity, which is how we kind of understand the universe at this time, he postulates that they only reconcile if there are six more hidden dimensions inside of our universe currently. 
We exist in four of them. We exist in a three-dimensional world with time, which is considered the fourth dimension, which is immovable. He says there are at least six more. By my math, the only way the universe works is if there are six more dimensions that we don't even know of that are currently present and existing. My question is, what if when we get this new body, it's not something spiritual. What if we get a real body and we just have access to all of these dimensions? What if Jesus wasn't doing something miraculous and spiritual when he appeared? What if one of the dimensions is the ability to be able to like dissolve and, and be present inside of these three dimensions? And all of a sudden he just appeared, right? I think that we're going to have an actual physical body that exists inside of these dimensions. And I think it makes so much sense in regards to the universe. So if you have people who are on the other side and you're wondering, they're completely embodied. If you're wondering what they're in, it's not somewhere sitting on a cloud, somewhere strumming a harp, but this beautiful, vast array in which they're participating in. Do you really believe in heaven? Because this is what, this is what I think, okay? When I step back from it and I look at it, there is evidence for an afterlife. Not faith. We can talk all about faith. There's evidence for an afterlife. And the evidence is pointing that there is an afterlife that is amazing. Not only that, but if I just might, it lines up to a freakish detail with the afterlife that's described inside of the word, words inside the Bible. It does not line up with so many other faiths. And it looks strikingly similar to the afterlife the Bible talks about. I wonder if perhaps these near-death experiences are trying to get our attention to show us that what's been talked about thousands of years ago, given to us by God, is actually true. There's evidence. Plato, the great philosopher, uh, once postulated an idea to try to explain kind of how, how much our perspective could shift. Okay? He said, imagine with me three men chained in a cave faced on one wall. And he said, of course, you kind of have to suspend some of your things. What do they eat? Where do they go to the bathroom? He says, let's just, the idea is the picture of this. He says, chained in a cave looking at a wall with a fire behind them. And they spent their entire life staring at this wall. And he said, certainly these men would, would deign to, to believe this was the entire universe. If they had never seen anything else, never experienced anything else, they would look at this wall and they would assume this is the universe. The shadows that they see move and the voices they hear, they would assume those voices were coming from the shadows they saw on the wall. The black and white that they had experienced, they would expect those are the only colors available. But he said, imagine unshackling these men and turning them around to see a human being speak to them. To be able to walk out of the cave and see the colors of the rainbow. To be able to experience the the grand expanse of this world. I say that because in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer says this about our current world we sit in. Hebrews 8, 5. He says, they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. He says, in fact, when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. He says, when when Moses was trying to create the, the pattern of worship, God said, I don't want you to just do anything. I want you to do a reproduction of what's actually happening in heaven. 
And when Jesus came, he set up kind of the system of, of how we're to live. But he said, really, I'm just coming kind of bringing you a picture of what's going to happen in eternity. And I would ask this. What if the writer of Hebrews is right? And what if, although, we've had these amazing experiences. I mean, we've seen grand beauty inside of this world. We've had heights of, of emotion, of happiness, of joy. What if everything we've ever experienced on this earth is just a shadow of the afterlife to come? I know, I mean, you'd say, but, but this, this world is so beautiful and it's so grand and it seems like this is everything. But what if all this was just a shadow? And in the afterlife was waiting for us a world far more grand than one we have ever seen. I want to do this. One, okay, you might be a believer. And I hope that today, as you get a glimpse of this, it changes your faith. Maybe it takes away some of the fear of what's going to happen when you finish out this life. Maybe it takes away some of the fear of people you've lost and you can picture a real place that you exist with a real body in a real world that makes sense. But two, maybe you're the person that you're still exploring your faith. And I would say this. As you get a glimpse of this, maybe it makes you realize the fact that when you, know, you come into a place like this and I say that there's a God who loves you and has prepared a place for you, it's not some boring eternal church service, Right? Because that's what a lot of people think who are exploring their faith. They figure all the fun stuff's got to be in hell, right? <laughs> Heaven. Man, I'm not going to sit there in some church service forever. Right now you're thinking, wrap this up, right? I got stuff to do. But maybe you get a picture and you realize, I, I never realized that the, the heaven of the Bible is this amazing expanse of, of a world similar to ours where we're embodied and that that's what God had prepared for me. That when you talk about the idea that Jesus came to this earth, and, and the whole picture, that Jesus didn't come to this earth to start a religion, that Jesus didn't come to this earth to be able to start a movement, he came to rescue us so that we could go to this place with him. Jesus is going to be in this place, no matter what. This place is created for the presence of God to be. But listen, Jesus loved you so much that he didn't want to go there without you. The whole story of why Jesus came is because our sin separates us from the presence of God. And when we still have our sin in our lives, which is all the flaws and failures and imperfections in our life, we won't make it to that place of the presence of God. And God loved us so much that he didn't leave us in our brokenness. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. And when he died, it says that his death paid for all of the sin in our lives so that if we follow him, he literally will be the path that will take us from this life into that eternity that we can spend it with him. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for everyone here today. I pray for all those who are here that you would bring about maybe a new understanding of what your heaven really looks like. Maybe it would bring comfort. Maybe it would bring peace. And God, I pray that you would give us a newfound confidence inside of it. Well, right now, if there's um, people here, and maybe you're, maybe you're it right now. Maybe you feel right now as though you're that person exploring and you understand heaven like never before. Maybe you never realized the reason why Jesus came wasn't to start a religion, but it was to rescue you and, and bring you to this place. Um, and I just want to give an opportunity. I, I, I think that life is too short to not give people opportunities. So no one's looking around. Everyone's heads bowed, eyes closed. It's just between you and God right now. 
But if you want to accept that gift that Jesus gave you of restoring that path back to this eternity, and you want to take that step, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to count to three if it's you. You just shoot your hand above your head because I'm going to pray for you. No one's looking around. It's between you and God. If it's you, you can kind of feel it's you today. Don't miss it. One, two, three. Go ahead and shoot up your hands if it's you. Yeah, I see you, sir. Go ahead. Keep them up for a second. I see you back there, man. Yeah, I see you, sir. Yeah, it's not too late. I see you here, sir, right down front. Yeah, I see you back there, sir. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six. You guys can put your hands down. And for you five, can can we just pray together? We're just going to repeat a simple prayer. And for all you who've prayed this prayer before, would you pray with them just to give them a chorus to pray with? We're just going to say a simple prayer, but it's way more from the heart than just from our mouth. Repeat this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying in my place. Please become the king of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you celebrate with all those who took that first step today? It's amazing.